You're listening to Ingenuism's Silicon Valley Examined, where we delve into how the tech industry is helping create progress at the speed of thought. I'm Dom Watkins. With me, as always, is Robert Hendershot. So uh, there's a lot of talk right now with the ever-evolving infrastructure bill about taxation. And that's one issue that we haven't talked, I think, much, if at all, about in terms of ingenuism. So before going into kind of some of the current thinking about what might be happening with taxes at the federal level and how that might um, impact progress in Silicon Valley in particular, I just wanted to start out with sort of at a broad level how you think about the role of taxation from within the ingenuous framework. Well, from uh, first from an, an economist perspective, taxation is always front and center, but it's not so much because it's important, but because it's relatively easy to deal with. Uh, you can estimate the impact of different tax regimes. Uh, you can look at dynamic responses. It's, they're really interesting questions, but if you think about progress, uh, it, it's not so important how the investments that, that uh, drive progress get financed. It's the investments themselves. So the choices that, that people are making and then the resources that they have that determines progress. So if you think about it like from a corporation's perspective, uh, it doesn't matter that much if the company is selling stock to finance its expansion or it's borrowing money or selling bonds. What really matters is what is it investing in? Is it investing in something that is really gonna make a difference um, to the company's prospects going forward? So from an ingenuism perspective, it's a lot more interesting uh, generally to talk about you know what the role of, of basic research uh, through a public channel might be to focus on how the the money gets spent but of course to spend money you have to have it so it either has to be borrowed or it has to be uh, taxed which is the equity equivalent um, for a government so I think that this particular moment in time it's particularly relevant to Silicon Valley, but it's not nearly as relevant as the decisions that are gonna be made in terms of where are we gonna focus our investments going forward. Uh, are we gonna be focusing on physical infrastructure? Are we gonna be focusing on intellectual advancement? Are we gonna be focusing on um, other, other priorities that, that show up in things like uh, early early age child care and elder care, things that are called investments, but it really would, would uh, be more of consumption that is, is set up to you know, make a particular part of society uh, better off and more rewarded. So, I mean, I can imagine scenarios under which uh, ingenuism would say like, this is a really big deal in terms of taxes. So, I mean, you could imagine tax rate, tax rates so big or conducted in such a way 
that they made investment uh, not very useful. They encouraged us to be um, present oriented to a point that people weren't didn't have any incentive to, you know, build long term companies and things like that. I mean, we're not really talking about that, you know, for better or worse today. We're talking about things that are going to affect incentives at the margin. Um, but it's it's not a case I would take it where, you know, we're not talking about literal confiscatory taxes that basically, you know, bring um, production to a standstill. So it's, I, I, in other words, what I'm saying is that when we're trying to think about kind of current tax policy, I'm underlining the fact that what we're really talking about is not sort of the fundamental drivers of progress from the ingenuous perspective, but things that will have some impact for better or for worse. And that's why I think it's more relevant to Silicon Valley and how Silicon Valley is structured than to the underlying principles of ingenuism. There's certainly uh, taxes that would be hugely economically damaging uh, you know, in the 21st century or in the 20th century, in the 19th century. Uh, but when we talk about incentives, it's natural to default to the financial incentive because that's what taxation does. It takes some money from one party and gives it to the government. Uh, but incentives are, are complicated and they are nuanced and they are uh, heterogeneous across different people. And so the incentives that I think are most interesting aren't the incentives that might, you might apply to an individual person who's deciding whether, you know, am I going to start this company or I'm not going to start this company, but more to, okay, given that people, some people seem to be wired in a way where they're entrepreneurial and they're going to go out and they're going to take on really ambitious projects, what do those projects end up looking like and what does the world look like if you change the basic foundation that, that all of that activity is happening on? And in a sense, that's what the uh, proposal to tax the unrealized capital gains is doing because it's it would be, right now it doesn't look like there's much chance that it, it will become law, and if it does, it's not clear whether it's constitutional. But it, it would be a complete shift in how taxation is done versus how it's been done historically. We have some experience of different regimes of taxing different types of income at different rates and so you you've got some learning we've, we've observed how the world works when tax rates are very high when tax rates are lower when taxes are more narrowly focused when they're more broad-based when they're done on on income which is your current activity versus done on investments which is is your future activity and so we know something about that what we what we don't know <laughs> is what would the world look like if we started taxing what in Silicon Valley can be enormous gains in advance of them actually being realized? Yes, yeah, so let me just outline it for people who haven't followed. And again, we're recording this on November 2nd. And so even some of this might be outdated because congressional bills in progress are always changing. Uh, and there's a lot of details to, to um that can dramatically shift and that haven't even been reported. But this is just in terms of what has been discussed publicly um, as of now. But the basic idea is that, you know, Biden had promised that he wasn't going to raise taxes on individuals who earn less than $400,000 a year, family or couples 
uh, under $450,000 a year, I think. Um, and so the, you know, we have an infrastructure bill of, you know, trillions that's on the table. And so, okay, how are we going to raise funds for it? And one of the ideas um, that comes from, I believe, a senator, but it might be a congressman, Wyden, the so-called Wyden plan, um, is offering what they're calling the billionaire tax. And the, the idea is that it's going to tax gains of people with either a billion dollars in assets uh, or incomes of over $100 million a year for three consecutive years. So we're dealing with a very small number of people. It's somewhere between 700 and 800. And the kind of main um, pillars of it is that it's going to require them to pay taxes on gains of stock and other tradable assets and uh, possibly others. It's not clear exactly at least not to me, things like uh, art and real estate. But in any case, the idea is that these are unrealized gains. So it's not, I sold my, you know, I bought stock for $10 a share. I sold it for $100 a share. And now I'm taxed on the, that gain. It's, I bought stock at $10. Now it's worth 100 on paper, but I haven't sold it. And I'm going to be taxed on that gain. And so um, I think according to the current plans, the tax rate would be at the uh, current capital gains rate, which is like now in the early, the low 20s, maybe I think about 23 or 24%. And so Democrats have said that, uh, you know, over the next decade, we're looking at raising $200 billion a year. And just to, um, I want to go one layer deeper just so that there's a little more clarity on kind of what this would look like because I think you need this to understand how it would impact Silicon Valley. So the the way that it would work to start with is that it would in effect be retroactive. So, you know, if you're uh, Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, the thing, the question would be, all right, what was your gain from your initial investment in your company to the present and then over the next five years you'd have to be taxed on whatever those gains were so you know if i'm jeff bezos and i put uh you know hundred thousand dollars in amazon and now it's worth uh many many billions of dollars i'm going to be taxed at capital gains for that and then following that first kind of major backwards looking payment then it would be on the gain, the unrealized gain that year. And there's some discussion of, well, what happens if you have losses? And maybe we can get into that. I don't, I don't think the details uh, are super important at this point, but that's kind of the lay of the land is that um, your, what happens to you on paper incurs a tax bill, um, regardless of whether you've turned that into cash. So, Robert, there's a lot I think we could explore about that, but just first reaction or first take. Well, I, I think the best way to think about it, and this is all hypothetical given that uh, in the latest version that particular source of revenue has been dropped, but you know the idea has been raised, it's, it's now part of the conversation, and so it's important to think about it now versus if uh, it were to show up again and you suddenly have to think through all the implications on the fly. So I think this is a really good opportunity to, to consider the possibility of taxing unrealized capital gains, that is gains on assets that haven't been sold. 
Um, and that the easiest way to frame it is to distinguish between assets that are publicly traded, so you don't have to sell it to know what the price is. Uh, that would be like your shares of Apple stock. You know what that price is even though you haven't sold any of the stock versus uh, assets that aren't traded so the value is less obvious. Uh, for example, your house. Uh, you can guess what your, your, the value of your house is and Zillow and Redfin will tell you what they think the value of your house is, but you don't really know until you actually put it on the market and sell it. And from the perspective of ingenuism and Silicon Valley, you know, we don't care that much about art and houses. And what we really care about are companies because most uh, high impact innovation happens within startup companies that then become public companies. And so there would be a difference between how gains in a startup private company were treated until it became a public company and then once it becomes a public company there's a um, an ongoing tax assessed based on the gains that are now obvious and, and clear each year uh, so that that's how i would think about it is how does the world change not so much if we start taxing unrealized gains that's an interesting question and I'm, we can definitely talk about it but even more directly relevant is what happens when we start taxing realized gains on public companies but not realized gains on private companies now eventually yes the gains on the private companies would get to get taxed but that's the whole point of unrealized gains is the the tax gets deferred and if you defer it long enough and particularly given uh, the the rules on taxation upon the death of a taxpayer. But even without that, if you defer something long enough, you're effectively um, avoiding it. And so there would be a stark difference between how startup companies treated versus how a public company are treated, or to be more concrete, how Elon Musk's Tesla stock would be treated versus how Elon Musk's SpaceX stock would be treated. And... Um yeah, I mean, I, th I just want to highlight the point you were making before. I mean, it's a weird sort of uh, claim that we're going to raise a bunch of revenue. I mean, that can be true, but if you're thinking like net revenue, um, a, a unrealized gains shouldn't really actually result uh, in a net revenue increase unless you think there's like really effective ways that, you know, a person at the end of their life can kind of escape um, taxes on all of their unrealized stuff. But, you know, this is more about moving it into um, the near future rather than the far off future. But what then, I mean, so, you know, somebody might hear that and say, um, okay, well, I guess, you know, maybe, you know, billionaires will, prefer to stay private or stay uh, private longer to kind of avoid this tax you know so what what's the big deal as we talked about I think in the last show we're already seeing an increase in how long companies are staying private yeah there's definitely um, a visceral sense that this feels like it's relatively more fair than the current system 
And if you're Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk or you or any successful Silicon Valley entrepreneur, and you end up with a bunch of public stock that is massively appreciated, and you, you good chance you live in California, um, and so the effective tax rate is going to be approaching forty percent. If you sell. There's just a massive incentive not to sell, and it's easy to access that wealth because you can borrow against it. You have what is you know, extremely valuable stock, and there are very standard and relatively low-cost ways to borrow against that, and then you can you know, have spend as much money as you want, and then in at the end of your life, uh, you're either going to give it away, in which case the government doesn't get it, or you're going to leave it to your heirs, in which case we currently have a step up in the basis so the government doesn't get any of it. So the effective tax rate seems really low, and yeah, we should, we should take care of that. That's a very visceral and understandable response, but it's a lot more complex than that when you start thinking about how companies are organized and how they get structured. I mean, one of the, the great things about Silicon Valley startups is how everyone is from the get-go on the same page, working in the same direction with the same results. You know, either everyone's going to do great or everyone's going to wish they had spent their last two years working on something else. Uh, and yeah, the, on, the founders are going to do better than the employees that come in a couple of years later. Um, but everyone is, is in the same direction. But if you think about a under a, a world where a founder pays literally billions of dollars in taxes if they take their company public, then you have a disconnect between what would be in the founder's interest, what, what would be the natural path for them to take, you know, keeping SpaceX private, what's the big deal? Uh, well, the big deal is uh, what about all of those people who are working at SpaceX? trying to create the future, you know, dedicating 100 hours a week to making this company successful. Um, in many cases, in the early years in particular, working for below market compensation, certainly they're not in cushy jobs where they don't have to work very hard and have great benefits and great job security. No, they're in very high pressure, exciting, but, but burning out jobs. And the payoff is that it can be a, a life-changing financial event. You can get rich, and then you can have a lot of options going forward. Well, if SpaceX never goes public, then that's fine for Elon Musk, but what do you do with the, the employees that have been working there for five, 10 years that would like to move on, would like to cash out, would like to get you know, compensated for the years of their life that they've contributed to the company? And there's no obvious way to solve that. I mean, we could talk about tricks that you might use, but that's the point is you take what is right now a, an ecosystem that is really firing on all cylinders and doing amazing things, and you change it into something else. And the idea that we would do that just to tap into you know, the Elon Musk's billions, and, and as you point out, it's kind of a one-time event. It's great from a scoring a a bill coming out of Congress sense because it's very front-loaded because you have this big catch-up over the first five years. But in the long term, it's not that relevant, at least if you keep it limited to the seven or 800 billionaires that you're targeting. Uh, in the long run, it doesn't raise that much money, but it completely 
alters some important dimensions of how Silicon Valley works. So uh, I think it's a, well, I'll just leave it at that. No, I think that's an interesting point that people aren't really talking about it. You know, I think inevitably uh, these things play out with a certain kind of logic and one path that could very well occur is Let's let's say something like this gets passed and we see more companies staying private for longer. That's clearly going to be positioned as people trying to get around a tax and a problem that needs to be solved. And so you could imagine one scenario that said, all right, well, we need to treat private companies. We need to expand the reach, um, not in terms of the people, but in terms of the kinds of uh, capital gains that we're going to tax, be they uh, unrealized. And how do you think then um, that could kind of affect uh, Silicon Valley if you have a situation where, you know, people who are founding very successful companies and not taping them, taking them public suddenly are called upon to pay, you know, these enormous, uh, enormous tax bills that they very likely don't um, have kind of, uh, I mean, the where they would very likely be put into a corner of having to sell you know some of their private shares in order to finance well i think that it it's the response to taxation and our tax code is extraordinarily complex and you know this would just add another dimension of complexity but it's always uh mitigated the the real worry is always you know will this flow through to the real world will this impact how people spend their time, where investments are made, how much innovation happens and how much progress we see. And on the plus side is people are very, very clever at minimizing the greatest damage from uh, poorly constructed tax policy. Uh, so you've got, you know, people point back to in the last century, there were times where the highest tax rate was 90% and you, you're approaching that uh, tax rate where it clearly has to impact people's decisions. If tax rates are 100%, there's, there's got to be an impact on what people are doing and how they're spending their time. And there wasn't that big of an impact because there were ways to avoid the most onerous tax. And so that's what we would see. And it, and it would be things like keeping companies private longer or, you know, I'm not a tax expert. None of this is tax advice. This is all just speculation, but we can very confidently speculate that there'll be responses that will minimize the impact on what happens in the real Silicon Valley. Uh, and that's a, that's a positive, but it's also got a dark underbelly because you end up with a whole cohort of very smart, talented, ingenious people who are spending their time and their, their intellect on figuring out how to get around the poorly constructed tax code. And that that ingenuity could be much better applied or much more valuably applied uh, in terms of making the world a better place to creating value versus avoiding destruction. And so I do think we would see responses and then there would be a, tax, a policy response and there'd be, that, that's the normal process for these, um, the, these provisions in the tax code and in the end it makes relatively little difference but we spend a lot of time and energy of, of which you know maybe congress's time and energy isn't that valuable but certainly there's a lot of value in the um 
the response inside of Silicon Valley to try and figure out how to work best, how to optimize the new regime. So I think that if you had a if you had something like this happen, that the impact would be less than we think, both in terms of the revenue raised and how much it screws up what happens in Silicon Valley, but it would just be another another log in the dam between you know, full-blown progress and what we're actually experiencing. Well, and that's, I'm glad you raised that because that was gonna be my next question, which is, I, I one of the most, uh, I think, plausible answers to kind of con- concerns people raise about the impact on um, of taxes on growth is something you mentioned earlier which is like it's not there's no scenario under which an Elon Musk or a Jeff Bezos says oh tax rates are at 42% marginal rather than 36% I'm not going to start Amazon like that's just not the case but when you have a, a tax code in that much complexity the concern is that you get a lot of other people who might, you know, be software programmers or who might be, um, you know, helping to kind of create uh, innovative companies who are using their kind of mental powers in these ways that, as you put it, are, you know, avoiding destruction instead of directed towards creation. And I think that's sort of the the real cost in terms of human mental power um, from from these from any kind of regime that's incredibly complex and that therefore there's a significant upside for trying to gain. Absolutely. And we'd much rather, you know, the, that effort, that ingenuity go into, you know, creating real games that are fun for people versus these very, very sophisticated and esoteric games that, you know, no one, no one outside of that small cadre of people who are actually navigating the code enjoys the code that we have today yeah and this point about kind of channeling ingenuity into like avoiding destruction rather than creation i mean i think it also comes up in the area of regulation that is the more kind of complex onerous and restrictive regulations are you get really brilliant people trying to get around them and really brilliant people trying to enforce them. And again, it's um, instead of having just kind of clear rules of the game that, you know, keep everybody safe and uh, like stop bad things from happening and kind of support the infrastructure of ingenuity, um, you get in effect kind of zero sum type work that doesn't actually generate value. And so I wonder um, if you see any parallels between kind of this discussion about uh, taxation with how we should think about regulation and its role in um, potentially hurting or harm uh, helping ingenuity and progress well it's definitely taxes are first cousins to regulations and in both cases you're trying to accomplish something with regulation you're trying to generally um, either prevent harm or provide some direction uh, that is is to be you know somehow is, is supposed to be in the public good, and taxation you're trying to uh, raise money for investments or consumption that it would be in the public good, and in both cases, then um, this is a little bit outside of Silicon Valley and more generally in society. the The rule is to do the least harm while you're doing whatever good you're doing, and 
that's something that in taxation, you know, we we definitely don't have a tax regime that at all would resemble, you know, it's it, the complexity and the inconsistencies mean that it, it's not a do the least harm set of rules, but that's not shocking because there's a lot of policy that's being tried to implement via taxation. And once you are looking to accomplish a certain goal, then you're no longer trying to do the least harm. But the way that people avoid regulation, uh, the way that, that they avoid taxes, and then the response, you know, we've already got a, uh, a proposal to put tens uh, of billions of dollars into the IRS which is supposed to raise additional money, but it, and, and it might, uh, but it is uh, essentially a tax on the taxes that people are paying. Uh, and you get the same thing in regulation where you have smart people who are trying to figure out how to make others, how to, to beat other smart people at whatever game is being played. And then you also generally have a, um, especially when you get into new areas, you have a level of expertise outside of the government that has to be, you know, realistically, uh, would you would want to tap it in terms of designing something that does the least harm and is the most effective. But you end up in this weird uh, partnership with the people you're competing with to try and come up with rules that you can both live by. So that's a lot of ingenuity being spent on a non-productive activity. And if you think about how uh, when we talked about IPOs and and how you know NFTs can manage to get around the definition of becoming a security, while uh, most cryptocurrencies are having, particularly ones that are being you know designed for a particular purpose can't avoid that you end up with a uh, a weird situation where two things that are very very similar to each other end up being treated very very differently because one is on one side of a, of a bright line and the other is on the other side so it would be like spacex and tesla it's not at all obvious why they would be their stock would be treated differently from the perspective of elon musk's taxes but they would be, and bright lines like that create all sorts of weirdness. But I think that that it is a it's a conversation that's important to have and not just be dismissive. Because even though uh, it is a, a fundamental shift in how taxes would be assessed, it could it could end up being something that would make sense. Now, I don't think so in a, in a targeted way uh, that only applies to seven or 800 people, but it could be something that makes sense if it were to replace other forms of, of taxes that are less efficient or are more onerous for people. Uh, and I know that this is a difficult conversation because we're kind of used to paying what we pay, how we pay it, but there's a lot of weirdness in the tax code. I mean, first of all, we tax income, which is definitely taxing work is something that it's not obvious you would want to do. Uh, we, we have, uh, when people rent houses, they pay their rent with 
their um, post-tax dollars. When people own houses, they deduct their interest payments and they're not charged taxes on what you call imputed rent, on the money that they're essentially paying themselves. Uh, and so you have this bright line between renting and owning where they're treated very, very differently. Could we get rid of some of those bright lines uh, if we were to um, have taxes assessed on capital gains um, based on something other than when they were sold? Maybe. But I would certainly want to experiment with it, um, you know, trial it, uh, have smaller scale efforts to see how that might work versus imposing it on 330 million people all at once with very little discussion. Yeah, and if I was going to draw up my experimentation list, there's things I would probably want above this yeah. <laughs> uh, on the trial. I mean, I'd be very interested in the role consumption tax can play. Um, but the um, I want to circle back well, around. Before you before you s- you circle around because that just sure because I don't want to talk about a consumption tax. Although every economist loves uh, consumption taxes, I just want to point out that what we're talking about right now or last week in terms of how we're going to tax people is the exact opposite of how you would you would tax people if you were trying to create an efficient tax regime because you're taxing uh, people on the value that they've created. Now, that's an, that's an easy place to go. Uh, you can make moral arguments for it. You can make uh, practical arguments for it. But from an economist's perspective, you don't want to tax the increase in value that people are creating. What you want to tax is um, the sedentary value of whatever it is that, that they're using. And that would historically be something like a land tax because you have... Um, a weird dynamic in land, particularly in areas where land is in short supply, usually because of, of restrictions on development, not because it's literally in short supply. Uh, but it, it definitely applies when land is in, in literally in short supply, uh, where it makes sense from an investment perspective to hold on to undeveloped land uh, because it's appreciating in value. And uh, there's no impetus to develop it because you can make an attractive return just from the raw land. Now, this doesn't work in Kansas. It doesn't work in a lot of places. But in the most desirable areas, it's a weird situation. And you can uh, see analogies to something like, you know, if, if Facebook were somehow you know, magically endowed with the 3 billion users, that then Facebook would face the same incentives. Uh, that there's a, a huge value to those 3 billion users that you can just milk and there's less of an impetus to build you know, potentially very valuable but also risky new services on top of the, the existing $3 billion, or $3 billion person platform. And so what you would want to do in, in that situation, and I, there's, it's not a great analogy, Facebook's 3 billion users versus you know, the land that, that uh, a company might own. But if you take that analogy, you wouldn't want to tax uh, Mark Zuckerberg on the added value that comes on top of the 3 billion users today. You'd want to tax the 3 billion. So 
creating a tax system that is based on the increase in value that comes from doing new and exciting things is the exact opposite of what you would want to do. So we'd end up taxing the exact opposite uh, of, in terms of the seven or 800 billionaires that would fall under this, the exact opposite, except in cases where it's, you know, dynastic, um, quiet wealth, but where you're talking about Silicon Valley uh, style innovators, it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, the closer parallel is more like it's, you know, the reason why you like um, time limit intellectual property, right? Like, because if the whole, if you're gearing a whole economy towards progress and production, then the idea that like, you know, my great, great grandfather invented something and now the whole economy like has to pay me dues while I do nothing and add nothing of value. Um, like that just becomes unworkable and it basically, you know, it's, it's uh, channeling resources, somebody who's not actually creating value. And so it's, um, I'm not proposing like that, I mean, it's a disanalogy in that you're not dealing with taxes, but it's the similar thing about the orientation is towards, you know, we're trying to create an infrastructure of development and growth and penalizing or rewarding th stagnation and penalizing growth then is kind of the backwards way to go about it. Yeah, it feels like you but, should tax the new thing, but you really want to tax the old thing. And it even shows up in regulation where, you know, we we don't regulate the old thing at the same level. We just accept its quirks and flaws. Um, and I, again, I, just like you, I'm not arguing for something different. Um, but then we hold the new thing to a higher standard, and that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean, the, this comes up a lot in uh, the energy space. You know, if I have a an really old coal plant um, there are certain regulations that mean if I wanted to like update one piece of it to make it better, a higher quality, cleaner, and so on, my plant would no longer fall under grandfathered in regulations. I'd have to scrap the you know entire thing, basically totally update it. And so it it's better for me uh, because of those regulations to continue with something that's old, inefficient, and you know more polluting than it needs to be. So you, you get these kind of misincentives that prevent um, progress where it could occur. The, uh, the, uh, I think the, the point I want to come back to, though, is the point that you be, uh, started with, but from a slightly different perspective, which is um, I think more that people are, the more that people are focused on um, like tax policy, it tends to be an indication that they're really kind of taking a zero-sum view of the world and it's we're kind of fighting over the morsels that are already here whereas i think the more that a society's focused on progress and the future they're focused more on how do we build things and kind of tax policy is there because you have to collect revenue that has to happen but it takes a back seat to the kinds of questions you're asking about all right what are we building how are we going to build it how are we going to make sure that we kind of move things forward and so I wonder about your impressions of that and just this issue of like where what do we regard as the important debates and where our attention should be focused? Because my sense is that the uh, our attention is not 
consistently on, all right, how are we going to make the future better than the past? It's sort of who are going to be the political winners and losers in you know the, the, the next bill from Washington. Yeah, we see that zero-sum attitude, which you know is, I think, ingrained in our wiring from how we evolved. Uh, we see it in a lot of... Um, way to put it it's it's in unproductive areas Uh, you know we see it in how we treat regulation we see it in how we do taxation we see it in even how we organize groups Um, but I think we're actually starting to move past it I mean the conversation about uh, progress that has developed over the last 20 or 30 years is really focused on how do we maintain or even increase the the kind of improvement rate that we've seen over the past century and the when you think about the ways that progress happens uh, we're in a environment that is uniquely set up for us to succeed Uh, We can see what's been happening all over the world under different regimes, under different different economic systems. We we can learn from other people's mistakes. Uh, We have the ability to try things at a level that that we've never had before. There's first a huge surplus in the world where there's no scenario in which if you know, Google spends $10 billion, or I'll make it Facebook, if Facebook spends $10 billion on, on trying to build something new in the metaverse, that that is a, uh, that that risks the company as a whole. You know, we have a, an opportunity to really change the conversation, and that's part of what we're trying to do here with Ingenuism, and it's something that Silicon Valley is, is really working on. But I think that if you were to take the attitude in Washington of how do we make sure, uh, if we give it a favorable, how do we make sure people are taken care of and, and not you know, how do we get our piece of the pie, but how do we make sure people are taken care of? So giving it a, a very generous twist. And you combine that with Silicon Valley's attitude of how do we get things done, you would have a dramatically different conversation than what we're currently seeing or what we have seen in the past. I don't know about what we're currently seeing. And so that, you know, the idea of experimenting with different things, um, you know, the universal basic income is one that, that people are talking about. Uh, universal preschool is another that people are talking about. Those are exciting, uh, and they're not that innovative. Uh, I'm not saying that they shouldn't be experimented with. I'm not saying that they wouldn't work. I'm saying that they're not a dramatic shift in trying some, you know, trying something that could make people 10 times better off versus being a little bit better off. So we still have a long way to go, but I'm I don't, I'm encouraged by the fact that we're having this conversation. I'm encouraged by the fact uh, that we're not the only ones having this conversation, and that the way the 
the way outside of Washington, the way that the world uh, improves has been by experimenting, discovering new ways of doing things, and then applying them both in the same area more and in other areas that essentially learning from what other people have figured out. Thank you, Robert. Be sure to tune in next week. And in the meantime, the best way to stay in touch, go to ingenuism.com and sign up for our weekly Substack newsletter. Talk next time.